If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Jonah. Unlike Ben, who takes two years to go through a book, we plan on doing it in one day, four chapters. Yeah, some, some speed here. Before we start, though, if you're over 40, you probably know who this is. If you're under 40, you probably don't recognize him. Who knows who this is? Go ahead, say it. David Letterman. Yeah, he was a late-night talk host show personality. And what made him famous was his top 10 list. Like every day, he would have a top 10 list. It would be something like top 10 reasons why your daughter should not go to medical school. And then each one of them would have a little bit of truth, but would also be funny at the same time. Well, I'm not David Letterman. I'm not as bright as him, and I don't have as many writers for me. But I do have a top five list, okay? And the, t and the subject I want to cover is text that you don't want to receive at 5.15 in the morning. Okay, so your phone goes off 5.30 in the morning, 5.15 in the morning, and you read it. So, text you don't want to receive. Number five on the list is, this is the SWAT team at your door. You have 10 seconds to open up. We know all of your political beliefs. Now, we actually have a member of the SWAT team as part of the church, and he says, we don't do that. He comes up real serious. We would never text anybody. He was teasing, he says, well, just break down the door and throw in some flashbangs and rush the place. So I don't think you're going to get this text, okay? Number four of things you don't want on your phone to be text you at 5.15 in the morning. This is the IRS. We need to talk. <laughs> Not a good thing. Number three on the list. This is your doctor's office. He wants to go over the test with you in person right away. Okay, when your doctor wants to talk to you in person about some, quote, routine lab test, you're in trouble, okay? So number two, text you do not want to receive at 5.15 in the morning. Dr. Fauci, he's the one that gave us all the mandates for COVID, has just mandated 24-hour masking and 12 feet of social distancing for the monkeypox. You know, why let a good disease go to waste, right? That's what I always say. Now, all of these are very minor compared to the number one. The number one thing, so terrifying, so disrupting, so utterly earth-shaking, you don't want to get this text. I got it on my phone at 5.15 in the morning. I have quoted it here word for word, exactly what the text said. Good morning. Any chance of you having a sermon ready? My, <laughs> yeah, my sign is cold. Oh, your sign is cold has gone into my lungs. Roger is very nice. He just doesn't want to share his germs with you, and that's why he stayed home. So text you do not want to receive. That's mine right there. So today we're going to do the book of Jonah. Okay, you all know it. Roger was talking about the Sunday school, how he still needs teachers, right? Well, Jonah, that's a Sunday school lesson, right? It's for little kids. It's not for adults, right? You don't, adults don't need to know this. It's all about Jonah and a whale. You've heard the story too many times for me to be bothering it with you again. Okay, so let's go ahead and pray before we get started. Uh, dear Father, we just come before you asking for knowledge of things we need to know and the discipline to make us get it done. These things we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, usually my way of teaching is to have the conclusion off in the distance and guide you down a path, avoiding distractions along the way. So as I'm getting to the conclusion, you already can see it, and you know the conclusion before I tell you. This is a little bit different. I'm going to give you the conclusion first, 
and then see if I can convince you of my conclusion. And the conclusion is this. It's not about the whale. It's about the worm. Let me say that again. It's not about the whale. It's about the worm. And hopefully I can convince you of that by the time we get to the end of the story. So, everybody have the Bible, and it's opened. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Version, 1995 edition, in case you're interested. And we'll go ahead and get started. And it says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Now, when he says word, I want you to think of that in the New Testament. John 1.1, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so this is God speaking directly to Jonah, face to face as it was. And he's talking to Jonah. And remember a different talk I gave you. I said, when you come across a name in the Bible, it's important that you know what that name means. Okay? And the word Jonah, or in Hebrew, Yonah, means, is the word dove. Now that should be very easy to you. What is the dove? The dove is the Holy Spirit. We saw it coming down on Jesus at his baptism. It's easy. There's only one problem. This is the Old Testament. Those people back when Jonah was written in about 780 didn't have the New Testament. They would have no conception of what a dove would mean as the Holy Spirit. In the Holy, in the, excuse me, in the Old Testament, dove had two meanings. Dove was when Noah was on the ark and he wanted to see if the floodwaters were receding. He let go a dove and the dove came back with a branch in its mouth. And so the dove represented that God's wrath on man had been appeased and he's going now to show his grace, his grace by having the waters received, there being dry land and a new chance for men. So maybe that's what dove means here. Dove also had another meaning in the Old Testament is that if you were going to offer a sacrifice, what did you sacrifice? A lamb. But if you were poor and you couldn't afford a lamb, there was a substitute that you could give and that was a dove. A dove in that sense is a cheap sacrifice when you don't have the best when you've got the second best, and it's not the best that's going forth. And maybe that's what Jonah is here. Not the best, but something second rate. So as we read it, let's see what you think Jonah means at that time. So the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amatil. Again, you have a name, try and figure out what it means. And that means true to God. So it shows that Jonah was raised in a very religious household. He knew a lot about the Bible. And it said, arise, go to Nineveh. And here's a map. So this is where God told him to go to, the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, about 120,000 people. The Assyrians were the mortal enemy of Israel. These are the Nazis of the time. These are the Gestapo, okay? He says, I want you to go to your enemies and teach them that they need to repent of their ways and accept God and be saved. Well, Jonah really didn't want any part of that. But this is where Nineveh located in present-day Iran. And it says, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish. Now, nobody knows exactly where that is. Most people will put it in Spain. So instead of going this way, 500 miles, he headed out on a 2,500-mile trip. This is the end of of the known civilization. This is where all the convicts, the destitutes, the bad people hung up. He's, he headed out in this direction. So he, and it says, he rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence. 
The Hebrew word there for presence is the same Hebrew word for face. So he fled from the face of God. And so the author here is trying to describe to you that Jonah was speaking face to face with God. It was up close and personal to flee from the face of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa here on the coast. Whoops. It's, he went down to the coast to get a boat. Now Jonah, his whole life is going down. Went from Jerusalem down to Joppa, from Joppa down to the boat. From the boat, he went down below the level of the deck to sleep. From there, he was thrown down into the water. From there, he went down into the depths of the sea. So Jonah's program here isn't looking very good. So he was going to flee. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship, and he paid the fare. Now, also you know about Jonah, he was very rich. You just don't walk in, throw down some money to go on that type of a boat ride if you're not very wealthy. So he was very religious and very wealthy. And he went down to go with him to Tarshish from the presence, again, the face or the breath of the Lord. He's so close, he can feel the breath when they talk. Breath of the Lord. Well, Jonah, as you can see in verse two, is gonna be quoting from Psalms. He knows Psalms very closely. And what does Psalm say about the presence of the Lord? Where can I go from you, Lord? Can I go to the highest mountain, the depths of the sea, to hell, to heaven? Where can I flee to escape you? You can't. You always will be there. Jonah knows that, but he chooses not to believe it. And it says in verse 4, The Lord hurled a great wind at the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Now, the ship... Maybe it's a metaphor for Jonah. Is Jonah going to break up when he sees this storm coming? So then the sailors, now who are the sailors in this story? It's the Phoenicians. It's the heathens. It's the non-Jewish people. The Jews were the people of the desert. They didn't like the sea. They didn't like the storms. In those days, fishermen were very brave people because they would venture out onto the Sea of Galilee. But when they talk about sailors, these are non-believers, heathens. It says, the sailors who are used to the sea became afraid, and every man cried to his God, God little g, not meaning the God, but their God. And they threw the cargo which was in the ship into the sea. Now remember, this is their livelihood. This is how they get paid. They're so frightened, they don't care about their money, their financial well-being, they're throwing it all into the ocean. And it said, and they lightened it up for them. And what was Jonah doing during all this? But Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship, laying down, and had fallen sound asleep. Now the term there, sound asleep, is the same term that they use when God took Adam, made him fall into a sound sleep, took out his rib, and made Eve. That's how soundly he was sleeping. Why was he sleeping that way? Because he didn't care if he died at this point. He would rather die than to go to the capital of his mortal enemy and try and save them. Verse 6, so the captain approached him and said, how is it that you are sleeping? How can you say, I mean, we're sailors and we think we're going to drown. He said, get up, call on your God, little g, not talking about the God, but a God that he thought Jonah might have. Perhaps your little g God will be concerned about us so that we should not perish. And each man said to his mate, come on, let us cast lots 
so that maybe we learn on whose account this calamity has struck us. Usually it'd be a, maybe a bunch of bones they would rattle, throw on the floor, maybe dice, and depending upon how it came up, they thought they could predict the future. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Probably God intervened at that point to come up in such a way that they saw that it was Jonah. Then they said to him, okay, they're going to ask him a series of questions. If you're ever stopped by the police and they think you did a crime, they're going to start out by asking you questions they already know the answer to, to see if you're telling the truth, right? And if they know the answer to it and you're lying from the beginning, they know everything they hear from then on is going to be a lie. So I think the sailors know the answer to some of these questions when they ask him. So they said to him, tell us now on whose account has this calamity struck us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and from what people are you? Jonah was a Jew. A Jew in the Mediterranean had a certain look. They did not look like Phoenicians. They knew he was a Jew. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. Good. He starts out by telling the truth. And I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Really, Jonah, you fear, you utterly respect and have honor and show honor to God? Was he showing honor to God when he ran in the opposite direction God told him to go? Did he have honor and respect for him? No. So the first part was true. He was a Hebrew, but he doesn't fear the Lord. He wants to die rather than do something the Lord tells him to do. Then the men became extremely frightened because they know he's lying. And they said, how could you do this? They couldn't even believe that they wouldn't even treat their gods this way. How could you do this? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, you don't run in the different direction and say you're obeying God. So they said to him, what should we do that the sea may become calm for us? For the sea was becoming increasingly stormy. Now, Jonah has a couple responses at this point. He can say, okay, God, I've learned my lesson. The storm come up here. Sail me over to the land. I will walk over to Nineveh. The storm will stop. You guys will all be saved. Does he say that? No. What does he say? Throw me into the ocean. Let me die. He doesn't want to go. He's still so bitter. He doesn't want to follow what God says. So he said to them in verse 12, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will be calm for you. For I know that on account of me, this great storm has come for you. What do the Phoenicians do? What do the non-air quote Christians do? Right? He said, verse 13, However, the men rode desperately to return to land, but they could not. They wouldn't throw him in the water, even though he was not of their nationality, race, or religion. They were trying to save him. Do you see the irony in this? God told Jonah to go to his enemy to save them. And he wasn't doing the Christ-like thing. But these non-Christians were doing the Christ-like thing by trying to save Jonah. Kind of sad, isn't it? But they could not, for the sea became even stormier against them. Then they called on the Lord. Uh-oh, Lord, Big L. They're starting to believe in Yahweh. They see the storm and they see what's going on. And all of a sudden, you get these inklings that they're beginning to believe in the one true God, Yahweh. And they called on the Lord, Big L. We earnestly pray, O Lord. Okay, the Phoenicians, the non-Christians, are praying to the capital L, Lord. How many times in the story up to this point has Jonah prayed? 
None. He hasn't prayed at all. But you've got these non-believers praying. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. And do not put innocence on us. They're going to throw him overboard, but they're telling God, God, we tried. It's not our fault. This is what's got to happen. Don't blame us. We don't want this man's blood on our hands. Thou, O Lord, hast done as thou hast pleased. We believe that you want this man to go into the sea, so we're going to toss him. So verse 15, they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. It was calm. Good choice. Then the men feared the Lord greatly, right? They're doing the, fear. They're doing the respecting, the honoring, the doing what God wanted them to do. Not Jonah. By the way, how did Jonah ever get to be a prophet? How did he ever get a place in the book? I mean, think about this as we keep reading this. Why do, why do we give him the honor here of being in our Bible? Then the men feared the Lord greatly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. What does that remind you of? Reminds you of Jesus being in the grave, right? Yeah, Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, him, capital H meaning Jesus, saying, teacher, we want a sign from you. They didn't believe what Jesus was telling them, so they wanted a sign. Show us a miracle. But he, Jesus, answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, yet no sign shall be given to you except for the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a sea monster, so the Son of Man shall be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment Nineveh is going to judge you and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What's greater than Jonah was with them? Jesus. So Jesus was with them. They didn't get it. The Ninevites had Jonah and they got it. So he spends three days and three nights in the belly of the whale. Do you think Jesus thought the story of Jonah was just a parable? was just a story, maybe a fable. Didn't really happen. It's just a story we tell to get across an important point. Does that story that I just described to you, what Jesus was telling the people of that day, did it seem like he was talking about history, that there really was a Jonah, that these things are real? Seems to me he's trying to say that. Verse two, then Jonah prayed to the Lord of his God from the stomach of the fish. Up to this point, everything has been in the third person. Jonah, he, he did this, he did that. Now it's going to change to first person, I, me. He says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help in the depths of Sheol, from the depths of hell. Thou didst hear my voice, and thou didst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. If you go through more of what he's talking about, he's quoting from Psalms here a lot. So he knows a lot about the Bible and continues to talk about it. You can read it later. But verse 9, it says, Jonah is saying, I'm repenting. I will do it. I will sacrifice to thee. He's talking to God now. I, Jonah, will sacrifice to you, Lord, with a voice of thanksgiving. I'll do what you tell me to do. That which I have vowed, I will pay. 
He didn't have anything with him to sacrifice at that point, but he says in the future, I will make that sacrifice. I will make that payment. Salvation is from the Lord. Do you think Jonah is legitimate here? You think he's really got it? You think he cares? Or you think he's just saying whatever he can to get out of being in the belly of the whale? Hmm, let's read on. Maybe it'll tell us. Then the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto dry land. We're in chapter three. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Okay, his second chance. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim the proclamation which I am going to tell you. What was the proclamation? Repent, Nineveh, and if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed. The message was of repentance. Okay, let's keep that in mind. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. So the Bible is telling you how long it was going to take Jonah. If he did what the Lord told him to, it should take him three days to contact 120,000 people and give them the message. Let's see what Jonah did. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. His command was what? Three. He did it how much? One. Do you think Jonah is following what God told him to do? Doesn't sound like it. And he cried out and said, so this is the message Jonah gives him. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. God's going to come and going to destroy you. Was that the message? No. The message was repent, Nineveh. And if you don't, you'll be destroyed. But he just walks in there and says, God's going to come here 40 days and wipe you out. Not, not paying attention to what God said. Now, it's interesting here. Look at the word for God. It says, chapter 3, verse 1, it said, the Lord came to Jonah. The word God is here is Yahweh. And this is the God that keeps his covenant, the one true God. Starting here in verse 5, when the people of Nineveh, the word for God changes. It changes to Elohim, which means the God of judgment. And so the people of Nineveh realize that it is the true God, but they're focusing on the judgment of God that's to come. So then the people, verse 5, of Nineveh believed in Elohim, the God of judgment, the strong one, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth. A sackcloth is typically what a slave would wear. And so it's symbolically saying, I am going to be the slave to you, God. You're the master, I'm the slave. And in repentance, they're going to put on ashes as well. So they put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered him with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes, a symbol of repentance for what they've done. Now, even though Jonah gave him the wrong message, these people repented. He's actually saving souls here. In a, verse 7, And issued a proclamation saying, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king of the nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Going on a fast, do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. They're going to cover their donkeys in this. And let the men call on God, Elohim, earnestly, that each one may turn away from his wicked voice and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God, the God of judgment, may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger, the strong one, that we may not perish. When Elohim saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked ways, and God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared. 
he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So what do you think Jonah's reaction to all this is going to be? He's going to be happy, right? Even though he did the wrong thing, God worked it out. First, chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah. The word here, displeased, has the connotation of evil. It was so displeasing how Jonah felt that it was evil in the sight of God, that Jonah was doing something evil when he thought about Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. This is now back to Yahweh, the true God. He prayed to the true God, please, Lord, was this not what I said when I was in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, in order for you to think about this more clearly, I'm going to give you time. These are our enemies. You weren't thinking clearly. Maybe you stayed up late last night. You have a chance to change your mind. I gave you a chance by trying to run away from Tarshish. For I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. The word loving kindness in Hebrew is hesed, which means... You have a loyalty to your promises. When you make a promise, you're not going to go against it. So he knew this about God, and you're the one who relents concerning calamity. Okay, you're not going to change your mind, God. Here's my new plan. Therefore, O oh Lord, please take my life from me. Please kill me. This guy is cold. He is absolutely one of the most cold-hearted person I know. And he's a prophet in your Bible. Why is this? This is like strange, isn't it? Please take my life from me, for death is better than life. And the Lord said, do you have good reason to be angry? Does, does God know he has a good anger? Does he have a good ang- reason to be angry? No, it's a rhetorical question. God knows he doesn't have a good ang- a reason to be angry. But he says, Jonah, stop. Think about this. Do you have a reason to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city. Never answered God. He just went out of the city. And he sat at the east of it. Now, why does the Bible stop to tell us he sat at the east? Well, this is, uh, let me back up. So this is where he's in Nineveh, and he sits on the east side. So he sits on this side. So which way is he looking? Where is he looking towards? He's looking towards Israel. He's looking towards Jerusalem. It's almost as if he's saying, Lord, you think I'm the only one that feels this way? I can look in the distance, and I know lots of people that feel the same way I do that these people are not worth saving. Don't blame me, there's other people. He said, he sat at the east of it. There he made a shelter. Now the word for shelter here is sukkah, and it was the Feast of the Tabernacles, or the Feast of Booth. It's religious organization, religious, excuse me, celebration that celebrates leaving Egypt and wandering in the desert. They make these booths that are temporary shelters. Now, part of the booth, it has two restrictions. One, it has to have holes in the ceiling so that as you lay there at night, you can see the stars. And also the roof could not be attached to the shelter because they were used to be moving every day. So he made himself a shelter and sat in the shade. Now, this is only partial shade. Remember, there's holes in this roof until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant Okay, Jonah's going to get a chance here. God's giving him one more chance. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head and deliver him from his discomfort. The word for discomfort, also translated evil. 
God developed a plant to give, God, to give Jonah some comfort from his evil. In Jonah, most important words here in, the Bible, in this section, was extremely happy about the plant. He was happy. How many times in the book of Jonah has it said Jonah was happy before this? None. This is the only time in the book of Jonah that he was happy. And what was he happy over? It was a happy over a blessing that God gave him. Gave him the shade. Shade, plant, blessing. Okay? But, here we come. God appointed a worm when the dawn came the next day and it attacked the plant and it withered. Plant is blessing. The worm destroys the blessing. So the worm becomes anything that destroys God's blessing is the worm. You get it? Blessing, plant, destroy, destruction, worm. So he pointed worm the next day and the plant withered and it died. And it came about when the sun came up, a scorching east wind. Whoop, there goes the roof. He was in partial shade, no shade now. That roof that wasn't attached is gone. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all of his soul to die, saying, death to me is better than life. Has he changed? No, there's no remorse here. There's no, I'm sorry. There's no believing that God is justified in what he wants. And he said to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? Now catch this. Is he asking him, are you angry that the plant died? He didn't ask him that. He's asking him, are you angry at the plant? Now back in verse 6, it says he was extremely happy about the plant. He says, now are you still happy about the plant? Jonah gets it. Jonah gets it. The blessing of God is being destroyed by Jonah. Who is the worm in this story? Jonah. Jonah is the worm. And Jonah understands that now, right? Jonah understands the blessing was God's willingness to spare his enemies, and he's going to destroy it. And he said, if he says, I'm mad at the worm, he's going to admit he's mad at himself, and he can't do that. So he says, I have good reason to be angry at the plant, even to the point of dying. He still hates the Syrians. He doesn't get it. He knows he's the worm, but he's not going to admit it. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant, which you did not work, and which did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I, God, not have compassion on Nineveh, a great city in which there are 120,000 people who do not even know the difference between their right hand and their left? They were morally ignorant of what's going on as well as many animals. Now turn the page and we'll get to Jonah chapter five. There is no five. You mean it ends right here? I mean, maybe chapter five was lost somewhere. This is how it ends. Jonah, the great prophet, angry, pathetic, selfish, temperamental, petty, foolish. Do you see any redeeming qualities here in Jonah? I don't see any. Yet this is a man they call prophet. This is a man that takes up a whole book of the Bible. Why is that? Why do you think? Well, I think I know why. Who wrote the book of Jonah? I personally believe that Jonah wrote the book. And he's saying, do you want to see what bitterness will do to a person? You don't have to go through the same thing I went through. Use me as your example. And so for all eternity, 
we have to think about Jonah in these terms. But I think he did get it. And I think he wrote the book. Learn from my mistake. Don't be the worm. Be the blessing. Be the plant. Take me as your example. So then that brings up the question to you. Which are you? Are you the plant or are you the worm? Sometimes maybe you have both roles. Maybe sometimes you're the plant. Sometimes you're the worm. Are you trying to stop God's blessing on other people? Are you trying to make sure your enemies get punished when God is trying to save them? Do you feel angry at somebody who stole your idea at work, gave it to the boss, and they got the promotion? Do you feel angry for somebody that did one of your family members wrong? Do you wish they wouldn't be saved, but they would be cast into hell? Have you forgiven your spouse over something they've done for you, done at you, maybe an affair? God wants to do a blessing and restore that marriage. And are you doing everything you can to stop that blessing? Those are hard questions, aren't they? So Jonah, it's a little child story, right? It's a story about Jonah and the whale. And if you're telling the story to a little kid, bring up the whale. It's an important part of the story. But if you're telling an adult the story of Jonah, maybe the whale isn't important. Maybe the important part of the story is the worm. Okay, we've got part of a worship team that has graciously agreed to wait and so we can have a final song. I don't want to leave you guys just all down about what I said. So I've got a good story to tell you. Uh, I don't know. One of the people um, in the church, Lori Corwin, knew that I was preaching and comes up to Margaret, my wife, and says, oh good, are we going to get a Margaret story? For those of you who don't know, my wife is one of the administrative secretaries here at the church. Uh, she's a wonderful lady. I tell you, when I was uh, a bachelor, I had no intentions of getting married. I was going to be a bachelor my entire life. And then I met my wife, and I just was crazy over her. And I remember the first time I told her I loved her. And, you know, you tell you love her, and you expect her to say, and I love you too. And it, turned, <laughs> it didn't turn out that way. I turned to my wife, and I said, looked at her very in eyes, and I said, I love you. She looked at me and she goes, you can't love me. You don't know me. <laughs> and just pulled away. So that's how my relation started with my wife. But she's a great woman. But let me tell you a story about her. That we were traveling up to Olympia and we were in the car. And it was on the weekend. And we were trying to organize our week activities. So we got everything done on the weekend. And she said something to me. She said that, remind me, I have to make a meal. I have to send a meal to someone. You heard about the meal train? And so she was trying to explain to me why she had to make this meal. And I think what she was trying to say was, and remember, words mean stuff. That's why I've gone through all these words and the meanings. Words mean stuff. So I think, she, she hasn't confirmed this to me, but I think she was trying to say, there's a couple in our church that just had a baby. But what she said to me was, there's a couple that had a baby in our church. <laughs> Now, if any of you out there are thinking about getting pregnant or something, please, the church is not the proper place to have a baby. We have no birthing rooms or anything like that, okay? And the mess it makes, yeah. So, choose your words carefully. Words do mean something. Okay, the, the worship team has a song for you, and when they're done, they'll dismiss you. All right.